0: Welcome to the Elevating Voices in Leadership podcast brought to you in partnership with Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Education. I am your host, I'm Dr. Gabriella Miramontes, um, and with me today are my co-hosts, Dr. Maria Brome and Dr. Asya Ghazi. Our guest today is Dr. Kelly Sullenberger, who holds a PhD in Global Leadership and Change from Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Education and Psychology, and an MA in Higher Education Leadership from California State University, Northridge. Her research focuses on college access with most recently publishing her dissertation, Establishing Effective Post-Secondary Education Programs for Incarcerated Adults. She currently serves as the Associate Director of Public Affairs for Admissions, Marketing, and Communications at Claremont McKenna College, and as well as uh, serving as a postdoctoral fellow at Pepperdine University. Welcome Dr. Sullenberger, how are you?
1: Thank you, thank you for having me. I am. I am doing well this afternoon, excited to be here. Wonderful.
0: So we have a pretty informal process. We kind of just ask you questions and have dialogue and conversation. So don't worry about it being overly formal. Um, Yeah, we just, you know, we kind of go with the flow. So we'll jump right in. Um, Tell us about where your passion for college access and advocacy comes from.
1: Yeah, Sorry, I have some computer noises in the background. Um, Yeah, so, you know, it it was definitely something that happened very quickly for me, like a sudden realization, which always looking back feels almost a little silly. But I came from an incredibly privileged background with family that was very fortunate to have a lot of access to education, um, I explained to people that I am a fourth-generation female college graduate. So my great-grandmother went to college, which was really unheard of for women during her time. And so I was always really grown up around that kind of culture. And it wasn't until I got to college, truly in my like junior or senior year of my undergraduate studies, where I realized that that wasn't the case for a lot, if not most people. Um, I realized that there was a lot of hurdles that students had to go through and extra steps they had to take in order to access college, which going to campus tours, having parental support with applications, so much of that was so second nature to me and something I never realized was a privilege. And it was really then that I knew I wanted to spend a good chunk of my life really advocating for those students to have better access and have resources to access you know, the things that I was able to. Um, and so just really asking questions of my peers and really understanding the world that I live in and the privileges that I have and how to use that privilege to advocate for those who don't have that same kind of background um, became really important to me.
0: Well, thank you for that. And before we go on, I just, I completely um dropped the ball. I have split screens and I was trying to make sure I covered everything at the intro and I didn't acknowledge Dr. Sonia Scherifard who's also with us. So I just wanted to make sure I corrected that because I try really hard to make sure that everyone's included. So sorry about that, Kelly. Um, so. So I'm curious. Um, As, as you, as you've gone, you know, you said that you're fourth generation and you had so much access. Um, How did that inform your advocacy? How did that help develop your, so I understand the access, but can you speak a little bit more as to how that kind of propelled you, if you will?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was a, there is a specific instance um, of a, friend of mine um who we were really really similar like I felt like we were like two peas in a pod I always said um we were everything we were both like we had the similar jobs we got to travel together we had similar leadership positions in our sororities we were so similar um and then it was her and the conversations I had with her in realizing different things um, for students who have undocumented parents or are first generation students, or maybe come from backgrounds um, that are underrepresented and underserved in the higher education environment. And really, really just realizing how different my experiences were specifically from her. Um, And so it really what that propelled me is to this may sound silly, but just like think of everything that like I wasn't, which is a lot. So there's a lot of things that I'm not. That's how everyone is. And so really just thinking about asking questions and um, getting involved in all the different kind of student experience, whether it's that first generations, whether it's veteran students, whether it's students of color, whether it's former foster youth children, um, everything kind of under the sun and just really asking questions and realizing that there are so many different life experiences that I will never experience, um, but the best thing I can do is find those people who maybe are or work with those kinds of students and can answer my questions so I can be a better voice for those populations.
0: So, and we can, we don't have to go down this this path yet, but um at some point, can you tell us a little bit as to what prompted you to select your dissertation topic?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, just for some other, I guess, listener context. um, Mm -hmm. So as as mentioned in my introduction, I did my dissertation on establishing essentially college degree granting programs um, for incarcerated adults in the United States. Um, And there were a few things that influenced my desire to research into that topic, Um, there is a famous well-known case of Cyntoia Brown, um, who spent a lot of time in prison, incarcerated for the murder of her. um, um, She was being, I'm forgetting the name right now. She was being like held captive um, and was, you know, she, in self-defense she murdered the person who was doing that and she was um held in prison and received a college degree from Lipscomb University and really there was a lot of transformation that she had she got to meet with lawyers and professors from Lipscomb who were also really there to help advocate for her um, and her wrongful sentence and she was able to be released from incarceration and has since gone on to become a wife and mother and you know, live a successful, wonderful life advocating for people like her. And so that was one of those kind of stories that really started my fascination into um, educating people who are incarcerated and what that can do for them. Um, and then I just started to read a lot about the different programs that exist and just understand a little bit more about the wrongs in our criminal justice system. And there's so many things that need to be fixed. And as someone passionate about education, I was like, this is one thing that can make a difference. It won't solve all the issues that we have. Um, But that's what kind of helped lead me down that rabbit hole of just educating those kinds of people. Um, Another thing kind of on a different tangent is, You know, so much of what I feel like my advocacy comes from is because I think that so much of the pressure of advocacy for underrepresented populations, um, the pressure is often placed on those populations um, and that it can be a huge weight for those individuals who already navigate life in different ways that they, in my opinion, should not be the ones that have to advocate for whatever background that they may come from. And I think that that is especially true for those incarcerated. I mean, they lose, for many of them, their right to vote. They are truly well incarcerated, a voiceless population. They have to ask for basic necessities. And so I thought that that was a really strong population you know, to research about and to talk about because They really don't have the opportunity to advocate for themselves, let alone should be required to advocate for themselves. So tell us about your research. Yeah. So my research specifically looked at how to establish effective programs. Um, There are a lot of programs or college degree granting programs, I should clarify. Um, There are a lot of programs that exist throughout the United States, um, but there is a lot of room to grow in creating more programs that could educate more individuals. Um, And my goal was to create a tool and better understand how to do that um, so that schools, universities, colleges um, can work with correctional facilities to create those programs more effectively. Um, You know, I think working in education, I know it can be really hard to start from square one with a lot of things. Um, And so I wanted to have, you know, maybe we're in square number two, phase number two, where they could start and and advocate for those programs. Um, So what my research looked at is I surveyed um, administrators and faculty members um, who have worked in programs that were college programs inside a correctional facility. Um, And it essentially, Took a look at different um, topics and things that made it so there was like a opportunity to easily like what parts of the program are essential, how can we easily start things, how can we have a list of things that we will be able to quickly you know get a program started. So essentially, just ask their opinion and to gather a consensus of seeing what they thought on what program um, at, you know factors really made a successful program
0: and so what were your what were your findings and and your aha moments
1: yeah I'll start with my aha moments because I am pulling up my specific chart to reference um, exactly I should have had that before um I'd start with like some of my aha moments were really surprising in terms of the traditional um, higher education college experience that we already have. Um, I retrospect, it feels almost a little silly because of course like the college experience should be relatively the same, but even as things such as like orientation and residential life and housing and all of those kinds of things, um, were deemed to be important factors in this. So that was something that was pretty surprising to me. Uh, I think that also it's just really can be um, humanizing, for lack of a better word, to feel like you are deserving of the same kind of things that other students receive in education. Um, so I think that that kind of social and emotional aspect of it um, were really surprising. Um, Now, in terms of the specific findings, um, so essentially with all the findings of the people I surveyed, I was able to come up with five central themes um, about establishing the effective programs um, and put them into Sullenberger's CAMPS model for correctional higher education. Um, And CAMPS is an acronym. Um, The C is the first section of findings, which stands for curriculum. Um, and that was really essential in terms of providing the same curriculum as a traditional college program. Um, kind of the example of that is through Bard College. They have a very well-known um, program for incarcerated adults, um, and they, their faculty teach the exact same thing inside correctional facilities as they do on their traditional campus. Um, this curriculum section also included things such as study skills, workshops, and orientations, um, and then developmental math and writing courses. So for students who maybe aren't quite there at the college level, having that introductory course, which is something that's really common at community colleges here in California, as well as the California state system. Um, The A in CAMP stands for administration. Um, so really important to have a dedicated space within the facility um, for the students to have feel like they're kind of in a sanctuary of education and a place to kind of escape and have community within that Um, access to supervised technology is another thing that comes from kind of that administrative standpoint. And um, they don't have the same privileges as traditional students do to go back to their dorm room and open up their laptop and do their research. They have to ask their faculty members, hey, I need some articles. Like, can you bring them next time? And a lot of faculty would print out articles and hand the you know, the students stacks of them to then read back in their you know, quarters and be able to go through all of that. They don't have that same kind of luxury. So giving them space to access technology. Um, then M in CAMP stands for money. Um, Obviously, there is no college program that could run without funding. So that was something that was really not, like there was no consensus in my research of who should fund the program. Should it be the college? Should it be the government? Should it be the correctional facility? That was something that was really up for interpretation. So that's definitely something that I think can be further studied. Um, But making sure that, there is funding to support these students. It also goes into the whole question of the Pell Grant, which is always a hot topic, and whether these individuals should access the Pell Grant. The P in CAM stands for Program Development. Um, so in terms of the actual partnership, um, oh, it was almost unanimous that people believed that they should be able to, that the formal partnership between a Department of Corrections and a college university is essential for a program like that. Um, I believe at this point in time, there is only one college degree granting program in the United States in a correctional facility that is not paired with a traditional four year college or university or community college, a two year community college, Um, and that's at San Quentin um, in Northern California. They recently just though became accredited to um, administer their own college degree program. Um, So that's fairly new um, to see as well. And then lastly, the S stands for student services. So things like tutoring and academic advising, those are those coordinated housing assignments that were surprising to me. Um, Orientation, those kind of like traditional student experience things, but do really impact that outcome and what happens inside the classroom as well. And so you said that one of the biggest issues
0: was funding. What kind of funding models exist in your research? What did you find currently in place?
1: Yeah, so it's hard. I mean, either a lot of it comes from fundraising. Um, So from Bard College, the one I talked about that's really well known. um, Because they're well known, they had a really phenomenal PBS documentary made about their program. Um, They can get funding from fundraising kind of philanthropy um, perspectives. Um, The Pell Grant is something that I think we should really be advocating for. Um, It was given to incarcerated individuals and then taken away. And right now it is in a trial period. Um, So former President Obama put in this trial period that fortunately has been extended. (laughs) Um, So the trial is still going on. But specific correctional facilities are assigned access to the Pell Grant. It's not every correctional facility, it is specific facilities within the states. Um, So it's it's still very, very limited access. Um, So I think that advocating for the Pell Grant is kind of one of the best things we can do um, because philanthropy, you know, that has to come from a you know privileged kind of well-known background of that, you know, the Bard College has such a reputation around their program which really allows for it i'm sure they have a lot of room where they want to grow as well um, but the program through california state university los angeles isn't even close to probably as known as the bard college program um, so i think that that is kind of one of the biggest driving forces as well as the university support um, for financial um, contributions but um, definitely not necessarily, in my opinion, the best way to be financing these programs right now. So
0: what's the recidivism rate of incarcerated people, both with education and without?
1: Yes, yeah. So um, fortunately, specifically with the Bard College Program, they've done a lot of research with it, and they have some really outstanding numbers um, New York State, where BARD is located, um, ranges on recidivism anywhere between 47 to 71%. Um, so it can get really high um, and it has a big range, but even 47 is pretty significant. Um, for students who participate in the Bard College program while incarcerated, um, they have a recidivism rate of four percent, so forty-three percent lower. And that is just for students who participate. Students who graduate and get a degree while incarcerated have a recidivism rate of two percent. Wow! Um, so significant difference, yeah. And yeah. so it shows. And and I like that's why I keep saying to people who. Ask, like, why did you pick this? And I'm like, we all should care about this. This is something like, ultimately, like, as taxpayers, like we, we pay for that recidivism rate, we pay for these facilities in one way or another in some capacity. So why would we not want to care to educate them so that recidivism is lower, and that these individuals can rejoin society and live meaningful lives and, um, you know, carry on their own legacy and not just while incarcerated.
2: Can I, can you, uh, remind us, I just, you know, the scope of this, it's, this information is just mind-blowing, especially that the recidivism rates and, and the incredible, incredible impact of these programs. So can you remind us about like how many, how many programs like this are there in, in the US? Yeah. I, I think you already mentioned it, but I'm just trying to kind of circle back and kind of connect all these little, all these, you know, pieces.
1: Yeah, an exact number. If I'm being honest, I don't truly know. True. And I think a big part of it is the programs look so different. So there's a lot of programs that offer college-level classes, Mm. but don't necessarily offer college degrees. Right, right, right. Um, There's a new program at Pitzer College, um, and they do what they call an inside-outside program. So they have Pitzer College traditional students go travel to the correctional facility and they teach a class with both incarcerated adults and their traditional college students um, but they don't do grant a degree for their program at least not at this time um, so there are a lot of programs through community colleges that offer classes um, but the number of programs that actually grant degree are much smaller
2: yeah yeah it, it's really it's just absolutely um Absolutely fascinating and um read your paper and even you know I've read your paper of course a number of times and you know heard your defense and all of this and and, and various presentations but you know what each time I'm blown away <laughs> even though I kind no. of know this it's because it just is so moving and um such a piece of our world and community that we, that we really don't think about very much, you know, and I love so much that you have sort of invested what you kind of identify as your privilege in to, um, these populations that are so far from, from privilege. Um, do you see, um, and And now, of course, you're um, doing the wonderful postdoc here um, here at GCP. Um, are you keeping in touch with the the dissertation work that you did? Is that or do you see a future in moving forward with this? And I like that.
1: I would love to. Mm-hmm. I haven't done anything yet. Um, well, it's I, still very I, new yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I definitely, when I finished my dissertation, I'm sure a lot of students feel this way, but I was like, I'm going to give myself like a week off and I'm going to hit the ground running And that did not happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, what I really hope to do in the immediate future is do a, um, another research study with the same uh-huh. methodology and uh-huh. include students who have graduated from these programs while incarcerated yeah Um, I think that you know with the scope of my project was so limited to people who work in those programs but being in the program would probably be a much different experience Mm -hmm. so I want to take my model take those resources that I found and check from the student perspective do they agree do they think that this these Mm -hmm. are also the things that they want to have in their program that they felt were effective or what's missing um what's still to come what are the gaps what am i missing here in the model so i really hope to be able to utilize it with with the students Mm -hmm. um and then hope to advocate um or do like dr gazi just put in the chat of saying like doing like a training program for universities and colleges i think it would be so cool for lack of better words to like go to a college and work with them on creating a program and working with them with a correctional facility um, to see a program come to life that would be a huge dream of mine
2: that's so beautiful and it kind of makes me wonder i was thinking as you're you were speaking um you know sort of where is the motivation for the colleges i mean other than you know fantastic altruism and we should all care right and and um and invest in this in this population which is a huge resource and so needy um, i and just kind of i'm thinking out loud here what what exactly are the benefits for the for the colleges that that support these programs um I'm sure there are many and also for you know for all of the people who participate in these programs. But do you have any from your readings and all of this, do you have any sense of um, kind of the rewards for the specific um, programs, the colleges?
1: Sure. You know, for I read several books and articles from faculty members who have gotten mm-hmm. the opportunity to teach in these programs. Mm-hmm. And hearing their stories, and um, they're just they're they're beautiful for lack of other words. And I think that as a teacher, and as any kind of teacher, whether it's kindergarten um, or PhD students, yeah. you learn so much more from your students than you feel like you probably teach. But I think that yeah. that is especially true for a lot of these faculty members. Um, so hearing their stories, I think, just like that personal fulfillment and a lot of them said that you know we live in a world that is kind of exhausting sometimes like it's hard to feel like you can really make a difference Mm -hmm. it's hard to feel like you have beliefs you want to advocate you want to make a difference in our world and then some legislation says oh you know nine people on the supreme court say oh well and you feel like what was that for and or whatever it is like it's you know there's I feel like it puts people kind of in a hard place sometimes. And I think a lot of the faculty said that this made them feel like they were able to make a difference in the world and not just in a student's life, but they felt like they could kind of give back um, and make an impact in that kind of way too. And I think for the schools, I you know if you look at every mission from every college and university, yeah. they always want to be change makers and leaders, and they want to help society and create a better um, global experience and a better world perspective, whatever it may be, all those buzzwords you see in every college and university mission. Um, And I think that there are many colleges and universities who don't necessarily go the distance to really push the limits in order to do that. And so I think that this is an opportunity for colleges and universities to really live their mission um and benefit from it as well
2: yeah yeah that's fantastic and you know just thinking about um what you're uh how you're you know describing the individual stories of 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 faculty who have participated in this program i mean i could just see that that could be such a beautiful book (laughs) no pressure but you know really so readable i'm sure there are some absolutely just um some stories that just you know would make your heart sing you know so um that's really so wonderful to think about
1: yeah yeah for my southern california listeners um you'll appreciate the program at california state university of los angeles that's like think of where csula is located so the faculty people that teach there they teach in the correctional program in lancaster
2: oh my goodness
1: yes yeah everyone's face so they drive and there's been a few of them have talked about just that very very long drive to teach a two three hour course um that's kind of it but how it's so worth it and you know they don't necessarily get extra compensation for that incredibly long drive um but the the extra compensation compensation comes from the experience that they have and um wouldn't change being able to you know teach in that program for shorter commute they probably would have appreciated a shorter commute but
2: <laughs> yeah but just that there's so much value in that experience and in that particular contribution that it's worth that kind of. Because we're talking about what? We're talking about like a three hour in one direction kind of drive sort of thing, maybe? I'm just
0: With sort of. Traffic, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, might, it might actually be a little longer depending. I mean, because mm-hmm. my drive to West LA is two hours. Yeah. And I'm nowhere near Lancaster. Yeah. 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 Because, I mean, it's past, well, and it's, you can't, there's no direct way to Lancaster. You either come east and go around, or you go west, northwest, and go around the other way. Because it's, like, right smack in the middle of the mountains. Yeah. So, so there's no, there's no, it's not like you can cut through the San Gabriel Mountains into Lancaster. Because that's, the, like, that's the direct yeah. route, right? <laughs> So not yeah. only is it time-wise, but it's also length-wise when you're driving because of the direction you're coming
3: in. Yeah, it's it's a long drive. I've driven from here in Torrance all the way to Palmdale. Just yep, past- next door. Yeah. It's right next door because I have a friend that lives there and I'm like, really, an hour and a half? It's- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And that's yeah. with traffic. That's with traffic. Without traffic is probably an hour and 15 minutes. So <laughs> it's a long drive. And and I commend that they do that because they want to um, better the lives of the people that are there in the correctional facilities. That's great. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I just looked up the my the miles. Is this possible that it's 77 miles? Mm-hmm.
3: I like,
0: could that's, be. That's mine like, is like 49.
3: Okay. So yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Because you only either have the 14 or the five. That's it. Mm-hmm. Can't take any other
1: free. Yeah. It's no like,
3: yeah, no, there's no, unless you want to take, what is it? Um, Like right at the end of Balboa, there's that, like, I forgot the name. I was going to call it Santa Susana, but it's not the Santa Susana Pass, but it's that mountain road, but that's a long drive. This yeah. is such a typical Southern California conversation. <laughs> well, we
2: could go this way, <laughs> thinking of all of the alternate routes.
0: <laughs> we know the, the, so Kelly,
1: um here in Southern California, is there only one program? There is only one degree granting or four-year degree granting program. Um the UCs have some programs, but I believe I don't think any of them to de- grant grant degrees. Mm. Um, but definitely in the Los Angeles area, it's just the C S U L A program.
0: Wow. and it's for four years so that it, it's not a completion program it's a full-on four year degree program
1: yeah yeah and so I think cool. they yeah they, they may partner with a community college to do some of the initial two years but mm-hmm. yeah they grant a bachelor's degree. Uh, I believe it's in communication um, and the one of the really cool things about that that program is there are many any indiv- many students in the program who, Are actually serving life sentences Mm -hmm. Um, so they're working on these degrees and and won't be able to really use them outside of the correctional facility but many of them tell stories about the impact that them doing that makes on their community back home and their children and their nieces and nephews and neighbors and you know they look and say hey you know he it's a male prison you know he is getting his degree while incarcerated. Like I'm not in, I'm not incarcerated. Like what, why can't I go do that? And like, they feel encouraged to then, you know, do more with their experience um, because they see, you know, their loved ones incarcerated, really trying to still make the most of, you know, their lives given that circumstance.
2: So that's amazing. So without even leaving the, the, Leaving the campus or whatever it's called, yeah. they still have influence. Mm-hmm. That experience that is amazing, and, they, yeah.
1: and the the facility too. the The behavior and there's more of a community, yeah. and it's seen wow. that. I mean, education is absolutely a privilege for everyone, but it's um, seen as a huge privilege in these kind of circumstances. So wow. behavior is different. Their interactions with staff are different. It, you know, it impacts so many different things.
0: Wow. What role does mentorship play, Dr. Sullenberger? What about mentorship? And do you see a discrepancy among those who have been in the program for a longer period of time and their mentors supporting them? Or what kind of mentorship is preferred in the space?
1: Yeah, that's a great, great question. I honestly haven't seen much that hasn't really been tapped in on. I, truthfully, there's has not been any specific mention of mentorship. Um, I don't think that they have those things set in place. Um, I think that staff members who work inside the correctional facility um, are you know, seen as authority figures um, and not someone that people can rely on to mentor them and then unfortunately so much of the college education it's the you know the professor does the long drive to Lancaster is there for three hours and then leaves. so um they may have be able to build a relationship but it doesn't seem like there is a lot of mentorship now maybe among the actual students they kind of take on that themselves but I think that that is could really fall under like the S category of the CAMPS model in terms of those student services to create programs like that, um, to encourage, not just word of mouth, like, hey, you should should do this program, but really encourage more formal mentorship opportunities.
3: Right, that's empowering. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, so go ahead. um, Just a quick question. Um, So you just said a bachelor's in communications. Is that the only degree that they're able to get or can they choose a bachelor's degree in another program like say business or um, social sciences?
1: Yeah, that was actually one of the categories on in my study uh, as whether they should be able to, I shouldn't say should be able to, whether the school should offer multiple degree programs. Um, And I think in theory, that is absolutely the goal is to offer different programs. Um, I think in terms of feasibility, um, that it seems like the reason they pick one degree is that is because they don't have the capacity to send multiple faculty members out from all different areas. I mean, this is so impactful, but really when you look at it, um, you know, that program has about 30 students in it. Um, So you're really looking at a total population of 30 people, Um, so to have tons of different faculty go out there for groups of two to three would be so ideal, Um, but from a, probably from a feasibility standpoint and funding and those kinds of access pieces, um, it's just not really possible to offer multiple degree programs.
3: Thank you for that. And another quick question that I had, and I don't know if this was discussed or not, but what's the percentage of graduates coming um, from the program?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. The hard part with tracking graduates is they, like for example, with the Bard College program in New York, like when you are incarcerated, you don't have say over what facility you go to for the most part. So there are times where someone could be a in their third year of the college program or even a semester away from graduating. And the Bard College program is only located at this these specific facilities of incarceration um, and they get moved to one that doesn't have it and then they're there for five years, and then they get released. So ultimately those people don't graduate, but it's not necessarily because they didn't want to or weren't able to. Um, Behavior plays a role in that too as well. You know, again, going back to that, like correctional facilities really see these as like privileges Um, and so if something happens and there's a behavior issue they can get pulled from that Um, so that data isn't necessarily super readily available nor is there's a lot of things that influence that data is what is probably a better way to say it
3: okay yeah that makes sense that makes sense thank you for that that's insightful yeah yeah
0: so Kelly, I noticed in both instances you talk about faculty going to the actual facilities to deliver the courses. Yeah. Um, is did anything show up in your research about online education versus real time versus
1: face-to-face education? Yeah, a little bit. It's been it's been looked into more so um internationally there's there's few there's several I should say programs in different countries um, where they do they in, educate and, and some there's an Asian country I forget which one but they um it might be Japan but they actually require their incarcerated population to work on a college degree while incarcerated um, and for them a lot of them is it is virtual um so In the United States, interestingly enough, that isn't so readily available, a lot of it has to do with just the actual technology. Um, And there is a huge, huge gap of access to technology for these individuals um, in these correctional facilities. So that is a huge gap that would have to um, be filled first, um, but could be a really great way to create more accessible programs and even if there was still a classroom with one computer, one kind of Zoom screen, you know that they could, you know, better easily administer programs in a more, um, you know, quick a quicker manner. So but there's not a lot of that currently in the U.S.
0: I have a question. I just don't know what the question is. <laughs> so <laughs> if anyone else has questions while I try to formulate the question, that's right there. That's fine.
2: Well, you know, I just have an observation that I think as with, um, with any really great study, this kind of raises lots of new questions, right? It's, there's so many things, it raises curiosity, um, among those of us who, you know, have the privilege of of hearing about it and, uh, really, um, you know, inspires, um, a desire to figure out how to help. Right. So, um, yeah. Um, cause they're just, um, you know, I just have like a million thoughts and ideas and, um, and, um, and I'm, I'm just so, so curious about all the different ways that, that this, know these programs can be improved and um how you know how they could be funded and you know who might be interested and the unbelievable um benefits to you know society all in all in in many layered benefits right Mm -hmm. um so i'm really it's Um, it's it's fascinating and so important and I I just you know wanted to express you know to commend you on on a study that really creates so much more interest and um, desire to uh, to do something right to call to action kind of
1: yeah yeah I appreciate that it's been it's been great I think that People care about this population, but don't necessarily know how to care, for lack of better words, in, in terms of how to advocate and how they can make a difference. And um, sure. there's a lot of people who are personally touched through incarceration in the criminal justice system. And there's a lot of people who aren't, and um, but still want to make a difference. And it's something that, like, I think it was you, Dr. Brahma, who mentioned it, is something that feels so far away and so removed from our daily lives, but in reality it's impacting us whether we recognize it or not.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love that.
1: So Kelly, what's next for me, for this, for, for, for you,
0: for this, for everything.
1: <laughs> what is next? I mean, I definitely want to continue researching this. I also want to just dive back into the research that I have done and, and revisit it and see what other maybe things. I mean, when you're writing a dissertation, you're so head into the dissertation process that um, I think it would be a privilege to be able to sit down with some of the data and look at other things that maybe I didn't see before um, and continue to write and publish on it and continue to, you know, see, see that unfold. And Ask those questions, continue asking those questions and you know, work with colleges and think tanks and different government organizations. Um, because a lot of this work can't is it takes a village for it to happen. And there's a lot of different players that make this possible and also players that can make this really hard to accomplish. So I think just really keeping that um at the forefront um, is kind of what's next around this, and hopefully. You know for myself getting to play a role and all of that as well um, would be great. So I know that um,
0: at GSCP, we've been looking at and we've been having conversations about new possible programs um, and one of the biggest barriers to a program like this is the funding. It's yeah. because we're not gonna. We're not gonna sugarcoat it. Pepperdine's not cheap, right? Our, our tuition is fairly expensive. We are a private institution. Um, and although a program like this is complete alignment with our mission,
1: yeah.
0: how do you how do you convince people? How do you convince people to give you money to create this type of program? Yeah. I think that's the biggest barrier that we're finding when we're looking at this, right? And the conversation is just about about bachelor completion program. We're not even talking about a full four years. So what we're saying is get your AA and then you can come here and finish. Yeah. Totally. But that's, that's been one of the biggest, you know, components, the, the biggest hurdles, because yeah. I think the other piece, the other pieces can fall into place.
1: Sure. But without yeah. money. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, step one, you can have them read my dissertation and then they'll be convinced. (laughs) Um, No, I think that it's, I mean, you know, we're all researchers here and scholars. And I think that research is so important and, and sharing that story. You have those recidivism numbers, you have that quantitative data, but also those, the storytelling aspect of what this does is so important too, and understanding the impact and Uh, yeah, I think that it comes down to, you know, fundraising for universities and working with advancement offices and finding ways to get creative and see what kind of scholarships and all of those kinds of things that, you know, can be offered. Um, And I think that too, like, this is something from a government perspective, they're investing in incarceration um, and this opens up to a whole other conversation of what rehabilitation in the United States looks like. Um, I think reallocating funds from a government level is something that would really, really help that and how they can support and whether it's even just creating the materials or supplementing faculty salaries or all of those kinds of things. Like I think with government support um, we need, politicians and leaders to advocate for that um, will really hopefully make it so universities that don't have the financial bandwidth to do this will have some support and can kind of like, you know, meet everyone halfway.
2: I would definitely agree that the, um, at the heart of, of generating interest um, for this, I mean, the data that you have produced is, is amazing and um, in and of itself. Is so moving and and significant, um, but like you I totally agree. The stories, like the individuals who are involved, you know, there's the stories of the faculty who make the, the incredible drive, and um, and then the um, the students and their families and the, um, the 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 kind of impact that that has on, you know, whole circle and community um is is so you know that's where um really tugs at the heartstrings and um and is you know relatable on that very individual level so yeah absolutely
0: kelly do you intend on presenting your data anywhere i know you i know you're published and and not just your dissertation right i did you publish um some component recently?
1: Yes, I I, um, published right around the same time as my dissertation. The the thing that actually from a research perspective created my idea for the dissertation um, was a paper around organizational behavior and systems theory and how that can be utilized in correctional education. Um, So I've also talked a little bit about that Um, and I would I definitely would love to present on this data, and you know, continued to publish around it, and to continue to ask those questions, and continue to add to the to the narrative. I was really grateful to have awesome participants in the study who were really thrilled to ask to see the dissertation once it's done, and thanked me for contributing to this field of research because um, anyone in it knows the impact and knows that there's a lot to still understand and advocate for. Um, so will definitely not be the last time I'll talk about it or research about it and you know I hope it really continues to be something that I can pour my heart into.
0: Wonderful well before we go let, uh, let's let switch gears a little bit just a tiny bit. Um, tell us about the
1: postdoc how's it going what are you doing what's your research there? Yes yeah so I can't I was you know started this casually talking about how I can't believe I'm getting very close to the first semester done of the postdoc. Um, it's been such a great experience so far. I am getting to co-teach and shadow right now this semester for an advanced qualitative research class with Dr. Kay Davis. And then Dr. Davis and I are working to do a mixed method study um, about how to support um, doctoral students on their dissertation journey. Um, so I always say I was so privileged to have a really positive dissertation experience. I loved, I, maybe that's a strong word, I enjoyed doing my dissertation. Um, I, l- I really enjoyed the process, the structure of it, and I had a really great committee that supported me a lot through it. Um, and so Dr. Davis and I are really going to take a look at um, doctoral students who are in their very first semester of their dissertation journey um and understand what resources have been helpful what resources are they aware of how frequent they utilize resources what their relationship like their with their chair looks like um and just kind of getting to better understand what their um experiences and if do they feel prepared do they feel overwhelmed and you know what kind of resources um help them feel all those different kinds of ways yeah
0: so you'll be presenting you obviously are presenting at the GSEP symposium, but have you all decided where you're going to be prese- where else you're going to be presenting?
1: We haven't yet. That's on topic to discuss this weekend when I see her. Um I have always had a dream to be published in and to present with AERA. And I, I mean, I feel like who in education doesn't want to present there? Right. <laughs> all the nods. Um, so that would be a long shot dream, but definitely, um, excited to see, you know, what ideas Dr. Davis has. And I think it's a really cool opportunity that there is funding for this. You know, so many students right out of school are just trying to get their feet and their bearings once again, so to still be able to kind of ride that wave and have the support of Pepperdine um, to continue my research and continue my voice as a researcher um, in education has been a really great opportunity and I know it's going to continue to feel that way these next few months too. Wonderful. Yeah.
0: Well, as we're nearing the end here, do you have any final thoughts for us?
1: Oh my goodness. I wish I had something wise to leave you all. <laughs> Um, no, I think that it's great that you all do have this podcast and that I think it's such a great opportunity and leadership means so much. There's so much that goes into leadership and there are so many important topics. I think it's such a great place to, you know, share these ideas. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be here um, and to speak on it. It's been great to, you know, have the chance to do so. Well, thank you for being here. We really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thank you. Just oh, such a pleasure to listen to. Absolutely.
0: And with that, thank you all for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's session, please remember to click the subscribe button. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you all next week.